From Lawson Media, this is Building a Unicorn, the show exploring what it takes to build a big global business. I'm Christopher Lawson. If you're a creative person and you're looking to build a website, find some art for your project, or music to use in your multimedia production, chances are you've found yourself looking for templates, or small pieces of pre-made works that you can use. And in your journey, you've likely come across a website like Theme Forest, Audio Jungle, or Graphic River. Marketplaces where you can purchase templates or pre-made art to use in your production. And the company behind those marketplaces is Envato. Collis Taid is the CEO and co-founder of Envato, and although the company is based in Melbourne, Australia, Collis actually grew up in Port Moresby, Papua New Guinea. I'm English in the sense that I was born in England. I'm not a particularly English person, <laughs> but I was uh, born in born in uh, Yorkshire in Doncaster, which uh, I've never been to since. But people tell me it doesn't have a lot there except for a racetrack and some nightclubs. Um, and then I grew up in Papua New Guinea in, in Port Moresby from like age three to seventeen when I came here to Australia for university. Papua New Guinea is like a amazing country, like a very beautiful country. It has a, like a I guess like every country has a lot going on um, in in the sense that uh, it's it's dealing with a lot of change. It, uh, when when we moved there, it was like 1982, and it had only been seven years since Australia had left as the um, sort of colonial uh, governance of the country. So right. it was really changing rapidly. And by the time I left, like I can remember at like age 16, there'd be curfews mm-hmm. at nighttime. So if you were out after six, you know, you'd, I guess, go to prison, which I was like, oh, that's normal. There's a curfew on. <laughs> Later in life, I'm like, that's not normal. <laughs> that's a very strange uh, experience. But uh, so, yeah, it was, a, it was a, a very beautiful country, but with a lot of change happening um, and, you know, some security security stuff and some uh, like stuff in in the sense of just you know people adjusting to very different ways of life like uh, when I was growing up we had a a house Mary is what they would call them so someone who would come in and work in the house and mm-hmm. uh, she didn't speak any English she only spoke uh, Motu which is one of the uh, trading languages in Papua New Guinea and only my mother my mother could speak fluent Motu and so she and uh, Koyoi the, the the woman could communicate but uh, everybody else just kind of assign sort of sign language things um, but she yeah could remember when the white man arrived like so you know she it was in her living memory that the world had changed mm-hmm. and that level of difference and and um history all all in like one lifetime is just kind of mind-boggling really Papua New Guinea is a country with a population of just over 8 million people although when Collis and his family lived there the population was closer to 5 million It was a country that had just reached its independence and was now finding its own feet. And when his family arrived, his dad took a job as a lecturer before moving into business. A professor um, at a university in computer science. So he had a computer science background. I mean, this is a computer science which in some ways is a little different from the computer science mm. today. I remember him saying one of his early jobs, he wore a lab coat. Like, so <laughs> <laughs> not what you imagine now when you're like, yeah, what's a development team look like? And uh, by the time he got to Papua New Guinea, he was uh, teaching and then sort of joined the central bank there and eventually was recruited uh, as, as like a managing director, I think was the actual title, for a sm- pretty small little tech company that had the license to distribute IBM uh, in Papua New Guinea. And that grew, yeah, under his tenure um, from like 10, 15 people to a few hundred. Um, So yeah, he did that. 
And growing up, I was always like, I'm never going to do that. I'm not going to do anything to do with computers or business. And then by some sort of weird psychological something or other, I've ended up um, doing something very similar. And uh, I suppose, you know, when you grow up with somebody, like he would he would always tell us stories about uh, um, what I've now recognized as like business strategy. Like, oh, you know, this other company, they're doing this thing. So and they're going to change the pricing and we're going to do that. And like, and I, I suppose growing up with that sort of background, maybe it it must have sunk in at some point. Um, and my mum was limited in her ability to work in Papua New Guinea because of the way the visa structure was. Mm-hmm. Um, but she, very proficient in languages, like growing up, she already spoke Farsi um, and some Arabic. And when she went to Papua New Guinea, uh, learned Motu and did translations and things like that. What was school like? Were you a good student? I was a good student. Uh, school was uh, school was nice, actually. Like uh, So, you know, uh, years later, I met my now wife, Cyan, and we would sort of compare our school experiences and she she went to a um, an all girls school in Sydney's Darlinghurst and I went to what is actually in retrospect a kind of idyllic tropical um, sort of <laughs> school which is very chilled out but also had a um, kind of high standard of uh, education in Papua New Guinea we had something called a house wind which is like it's like literally translates to a house of wind and it's basically a um, as you'd think of it like a just the roof and some poles from a building because right. that's like a way to keep cool right is like the wind blows through and so and my memory of school is like sitting in a house when at lunchtime and um, in what was a perpetually warm sort of environment mm. with a, a very multicultural um, kind of school like we had a school which was uh, had some people from Papua New Guinea but also had kids from all around the world so um, lots of uh, Africans lots of uh, we had Americans and heaps of Australians and just people from all over the place and uh, consequently had a sort of nice uh, United Nations vibe going on, which was good. I think towards the end, maybe uh, I got a a little um, rebellious. One day I decided to free the mice. The biology class had like a snake and they would feed mice to it. And I got it into my head that I needed to go free them. And so (laughs) so I, you know, would get into some trouble uh, doing things like that. There was also um, uh, a friend and I decided that we would start bringing soft drinks into the school. Like uh, that was not a thing you could get at school. And Papua is not like, it's not like here. You didn't just like wander down to a shop. And so things you could get in school were limited. And so uh, we came up with uh, a plan that we would go to like the Coke factory. We would buy a whole bunch of soft drinks. We would bring them in and sell them at lunchtime. And uh, how'd that go? It went pretty good. Like uh, it went especially good when when Coke uh, in in Papua New Guinea launched a set of uh, cans which had like a bonus thirty percent, and we just like charged thirty percent more. We're like, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, same cost to us, and uh, yeah, I mean a lot of the funds we would give to the student council to like run our our sort of student events and things. But yeah, that was maybe one of my first uh, I guess entrepreneurial activities, like trying to figure out like how to source how to source Coke, how to sell it, how to price it, how to get like a freezer, how to like get everything organized at school. And um, being that every student was a bit starved of like delicious things, it was, uh, yeah, it was very successful. As Collis completed school and looked at his options for further study, he realised the local university just didn't have that many good courses for him to study outside of tropical medicine. His brother was already living in Sydney, so he decided it was time for a change. So he made the move to Australia where he would have more choices. 
So yeah, I came to Australia and studied maths. That's what I had signed up to. I was good at maths and I was like, that time in life I had no particular aspirations of what I was going to do. So I was like, I guess I should just do something I'm good at. So I signed up to maths and on orientation day, some random guy that I just met was like, don't do just maths. You should like stick something on it. Like what about like uh, computer science? And so that in some sort of like last minute thing, I managed to get computer science into my degree. Um, and uh, ultimately that was kind of helpful, I think, just to give me some foundations for what would later be a career in tech. But despite being a good student at school, Collis says he wasn't a great student at university. As he approached the end of his degree, he didn't really know what he wanted to do with his life. So he started thinking about a different career. I had a flatmate, uh, a best friend who'd actually come from Papua New Guinea as well, who was a web designer. He'd studied uh, design. And I always used to think, oh, that looks like a lot more fun <laughs> than what I've been doing. And so I, I got a, like a, a bootleg copy of Photoshop and started teaching myself um, and uh, then like eventually started like learning how to design and um, got a job as a like guy who made sandwiches and uh, coffee and then like it was in a really quiet store so when nobody was there I would read magazines about design and just like teach myself stuff and uh, eventually managed to trade that for an actual job as a designer but I had a lot of like um, had a lot of imposter syndrome like mm. I was really like oh I'm not a real designer I'm like this like undercover of a math guy. <laughs> what, what kind of stuff were you designing? A lot of websites, I guess. And um, I used to write Photoshop tutorials. Uh, like, it's really wrong, really, because I was just barely learning myself. But um, <laughs> sometimes I think when you're going on your own learning journey, you start being like, oh, I'll teach other people who are in this same sort of space as me. So I would, I would design like just anything, really. Posters, websites. I would like uh, learn to do like neat little effects. And yeah, I, I, but I, I didn't feel like I was an actual designer. And so eventually I went and got a second degree. Somewhere during this period of time, you met your wife, uh, Cyan. So tell me about that. When did you guys meet? Uh, so yeah, like I was, I was studying my second degree at, at UTS, Interactive Multimedia, and um, like a, a, a random email um, came in from the Australian Graphic Designers Association, AGDA, and they were starting a student group, like a, a student council for, for student designers. And I, I was like, I need to meet more girls. <laughs> I kind of like, I, I need to uh, um, break out of my regular social circle. So I was like, I'm just going to go to this thing and see, um, uh, like it's, which is, you know, if you know me, uh, I'm actually extremely introverted. The idea that I would go to a place where I knew nobody was kind of uh, like a strange, a strange thing to do, actually, a bit out of character. And when I went along, um, the, there was a, a woman who was like leading, she was like kind of chairing things. And yeah, her name was Cyan, which is like uh, for, for anyone who studies design is like the best name ever, as it's the name of a color. And yeah, she seemed to to be all that and I, I, I think I was uh, I immediately um, kind of hit it off with her a little and asked her out on a date and said no and asked her again and <laughs> got there eventually yeah <laughs> so what what attracted you to her Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I don't think I've ever been asked that question on a podcast before. Yeah, I think what attracted me, uh, attracted me to, to, to Sam was really that, like, I, I, I like that she's confident and that uh, she is a little a little more, like, extroverted than I am and uh, was uh, kind of in, in charge, is what, how I want to say. Like, I, I remember rocking up and she seemed to be the leader of the group and was kind of, like, running the agenda. And I just remember 
thinking that was awesome. I, I liked a, uh, a woman who knew what she was about. She looks great too and, you know, all those kinds of things. And over time I've learned that she's also super kind and honest and all kinds of nice things. But yeah, the thing that attracted me to her was just straight out confidence. Coming up after the break, Cyan and Collis begin their journey together both in life and in business. This is Building a Unicorn. I'm Christopher Lawson. After Collis met Cyan, it didn't take that long before things started getting serious. Cyan was still studying when they met, and as they were both designers, eventually the question came up of whether they should start freelancing, and also whether they should get married. She was the daughter of a freelance photographer, so I think you know it was kind of like a natural path for her, and we began freelancing. We got married. Uh, married at, uh, she was 23, 24, I was 25, 26, that sort of age, because it's so hard to remember now. But the um, we got married uh, and we had really just kicked off this kind of freelancing in, in earnest maybe six six months prior. And having gotten married, we kind of had this, like, I, I guess, sort of life conversation. Like, so, you know, what is it you want in life? And uh, <laughs> Sam was really like, I want to travel the world. Um, that was like super important to her. And I was like, I'd like to work on something. Uh, I feel like that's something I just really want to work on a thing. Um, and uh, as freelancers, you know, at that time we were sort of graphic design freelancers. So you would do a lot of like needing to see clients where you would show them print samples and you would, um, we had the kind of clients that like we, we had a client that was like the local government association. It wasn't like a, right. no problem, we'll work with someone who's on the other side of the world. We had really like in-person physical clients. And so uh, we, we kind of came to the conclusion that that was probably not, not the best plan for if you wanted to travel and so yeah we started like kicking around the idea of starting a online company because like how hard could that be and then we could just be wherever the hell we wanted to be and work on it so yeah it was like around that time that we came up with the idea that we would start a marketplace. I'd been selling some stuff on iStock Photo, which was a sort of marketplace for photography primarily. Um, and uh, so, like, Cyan and I had experimented along with my best friend, Jin, from, who's the the designer I used to um, room with who had uh, Photoshop back way back when. We would, like, trial, like, really silly things. Like, one day, Jin and I put on suit jackets and took a photo of our hands shaking so that we could try <laughs> uploading a stock photo of business. Um, so, Did anyone buy it? <laughs> I did. It was our bestseller. <laughs> it was such a cliche photo, <laughs> and just like you know, uh, being being who we were, that it was such cheap suits as well. Anyhow, I'm sure that photo's somewhere still out there. But we, yeah, we sort of kicked around the idea that what if we started our own marketplace, and we maybe would specialize more in flash design, which was a thing that was uh, happening at that time. And I had sold a bit of flash, and so kind of knew that people were interested in it. Jun, um, when he heard about the idea, was like, "Yeah, I'd, I'd you know, I'd put some money into that and um, like work on it. That sounds like a, a fun thing." And so, uh, yeah, one thing led to another, and we wrote a like a, <laughs> I wrote a what is a not a good business plan. I literally so I went to a news agent, bought a book about how to write a business plan, <laughs> followed it for like about a third of the way, and then gave up when I got to the bit about financials, and was like, "Oh, I'm sure it'll be fine." Spent an inordinate amount of time planning like all the stuff that we would put on the website 
stuff that you know today in in the era of lean startups when they're like you know what is the minimum viable idea? this was not the minimum this was the like um the thing you make when you probably don't know what you're doing <laughs> um but we had well, the thing we did know i guess was making making online products like because we had uh, made websites for other people and so um mm. we had some skills and it turns out just enough skills i think to, to actually get something going we needed a back-end developer and so i put a job ad up on seek Right. And a uh, a guy I actually knew wrote, um, sent me an email saying, pick me, pick me. And um, uh, I was like, oh, Ryan, I haven't seen that guy for a while. And uh, so, yeah, we chatted to him and um, he pitched us on using a particular uh, development framework called Ruby. And yeah, and we, we got started. It was initially, I hired him for eight weeks. I was like, it'll be eight weeks. Eight weeks, we'll build the thing. It'll be finished. We'll start <laughs> making money. And I will travel. And uh, that was the plan. It was. Uh, it did not turn out that way, of course. That fun thing eventually became Envato. But in the early days, Collis, Cyan and June were building a site that allowed people to purchase pre-made templates for Adobe Flash. It was a marketplace app, so they decided to call it Flashden. Yes, it was called Flash. Quite an unfortunate name, really. Like, so we <laughs> sold Flash. I wanted it to be called Flash Fox, uh, I think just because I... I thought foxes were cool and I had this little logo idea for a foxtail and um, we saw a lawyer like so I had enough sense to go oh, we should go see a lawyer about like trademarks and stuff and he was like oh fox is very litigious you probably shouldn't use fox don't know why he didn't point out that flash was the trademark of a product we were selling <laughs> we only learned that later but I'd already designed the little foxtail and I was like oh we'll just go with like where foxes live um, it'll be a den but yeah I kind of recall going to like a bank one time and the bank teller being like what kind of website is this because it sounded really like an adult website like <laughs> a very unsavory adult website <laughs> flash <laughs> den yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, um, but yeah so we we ran with that name uh, we launched it and um, it just took a bit longer than we had expected around this time in the mid 2000s adobe flash was the backbone of many websites if you're old enough you'll remember seeing a rise in these animated interactive sites and because flash was such a popular thing the templates on Flash Den started getting real traction as soon as they launched. But actually getting to that point took a little longer than the eight weeks they initially planned. You know, it's funny, like, uh, looking back now, I realise, wow, they were immediately interested. At the time, like, so we ended up working on it for six months, not the eight weeks I'd originally envisioned. And by the time we got there, and maybe this is true for other creators as well, by the time we launched, I imagined everybody else in the world had been on the same six-month journey of thinking it wasn't going to happen, and then it came together, and then, like, we launched. And so I think I imagined on day one, they'd all show up ready to spend being excited that we'd made this thing. But of course, the reality is nobody had heard anything of this product. <laughs> so on day one, we did actually get some traffic and we made a sale on the first 24 hours to someone somewhere in the world. I have no idea where. And I remember being bummed out that like, oh, $10, that's all we got. <laughs> um, but now looking back, I'm like, wow, someone like got out their wallet on the very first day that's actually like a really good sign and given we had no presence no marketing no like all we did was um we had this strategy that we would try to appear in places that designers went so it was a marketplace for uh, people who were into flash design which as you say was really big back then and so we designed the site so that it would be featured in design galleries and and so that brought some of that early traffic and so yeah it, it picked up pretty quick actually in in retrospect the site launched in August of 2006, with that one $10 sale. 
But by the end of 2006, they were making $1,000 a week. Our part of that was, was like a half and then there was five of us or something. So it wasn't exactly like, wow, we can actually like eat from this. But it was growing quite quickly. And um, by How are you getting the word out? So we did a lot of uh, like um, kind of, I guess, just like guerrilla marketing tactics. Like we would just try anything. I, I was of the opinion that we should try absolutely every single thing we could think of. We had no money, but we had time. Um, like, uh, you know, I was uh, early 20 or mid 20s and no children and not a lot of responsibilities and with a proclivity to just work endlessly. And so I would just go, well, let's try getting into design galleries. We'll try to go onto forums. We tried buying some really cheap ads. Advertising was a little bit cheaper back then. Um, there was just less competition. Tried to get onto social media. I've been kicked off all, all sorts of social media platforms <laughs> in my years uh, for various uh, um, spam type <laughs> um, tactics that I've tried. Uh, I would try like content marketing. We would try um, like I want to say like networking, like you know actually going to to like leave comments on other people's sites, like uh, like a bunch of stuff I've probably forgotten now as well. We would I would create little campaigns like we uh, after we had a few items on the site, I com- like I created a showroom out of them, and then we used that to get into more galleries. We gave away uh, a whole bunch of free credits to try to sort of simulate um, real customer interest, so that sellers because this is a two sided marketplace we're talking about, so that sellers would get excited and. And put more stuff. But ultimately, right. the tactic that worked the best for us was just developing an organic search profile. So we, um, and it's sort of inherent to marketplaces. Um, digital marketplaces naturally favor lots and lots of content, lots and lots of content from lots and lots of people. And those people naturally put in different keywords into the things they're selling. And you kind of get picked up by organic search quite well. So that, mm-hmm. like, really, I think, was the, the engine that drove things. But yeah, in terms of like just like start, hard start. The, the business, it was like we just do whatever we can think of and see if it'll stick. The interesting thing about marketplaces is that to be successful at them, you generally need a lot of products to sell. And in the early days, Collis and Cyan were having to create all that content themselves. So, uh, like, we did need to pick one of the two sides of the marketplace, and the natural one is that sell side. Like, how do you put some content in there so that customers are interested? And the content for us, uh, we we started with four categories, flash, uh, video, audio, and fonts. And really, it was all about the flash bit. Like, the the other three categories were pretty limited. Um, Audio was, like, mostly sound effects. Jen, my best friend, went around with, like, a little uh, handheld mic and just recorded weird sounds, Um, (laughs) clicks and pats and, you know, taps and what have you. And they were they would be used for like you know buttons or like uh, swishes or whatnot. Flash right. had a lot more animation in it, so that was kind of relevant. Um, yeah, but uh, the the actual flash stuff, I I made quite a bit of the early stuff. wasn't particularly good. It was all right though. Um, and that was enough to to like launch on day one. And then uh, so we had a little bit of money. So we had um, between the three of us, we had close to thirty thousand dollars that we put into the business during that time. We put in a lot more hours, and we used to tally our hours so that later eventually the business could pay us back in some way. and um, But we had a little bit of money and we needed to use it judiciously. We used quite a bit on the developer. We used a bit on seeding content. So we would pay a few people to like um, incentivize them to upload stuff or to create stuff that we didn't naturally know how to make. 
So this was all like cash that you had available to put into the business or were you just sort of leveraging your credit cards? <laughs> <laughs> it was like whatever we could manage. So yeah, there, go, there went all of our savings and then um, a, a bit of gin savings and then credit cards. And then uh, like, so the whole time we kept freelancing um, and uh, like, you know, we, we being, I guess, mid 20s didn't have a particularly like highbrow lifestyle level or anything. And so we would just um, really minimize our normal expenditures and put in uh, any money we could. Um, we ended up getting kicked out of our house and we went and lived with her parents and um, that helped, you know, to basically whatever we could do, we did. Um, and, you know, which I think is like, I guess, pretty typical, like, uh, the thing is now you look back and you feel like, oh, yeah, it was great, great investment. At the time, uh, especially close to launch, when it when I wasn't sure we would actually launch, it felt really like, God, we're just like wasting everything we have here. We're going to be those, those, those people who just burnt all their savings and then ended up with nothing. Um, and, you know, having just gotten married, like... Uh, like you're, I guess I was already in the mindset of like, well, I should, you know, be trying to like prepare for the future in some way. So yeah, it was a bit scary at the time in that sense. Stressful? Very stressful. I mean, in general, the entire process of everything to do with Envoto, I, I have a tendency of looking back and and remembering all the stress. There's lots of fun bits too, and maybe it's just my personality, but I like I dislike looking at photos of anything to do with work during that time. And when I say during that time, I mean the entire like decade. <laughs> just because I I just remember like oh that was near that time that that thing happened or that thing happened, and I think that um. When you look back at uh, probably anything that's been successful, certainly, when I look back at the business which has been successful, it's really easy to imagine you always knew it was going to be successful. But mm. instead, in reality, at least for me, I spent the whole time thinking at any moment now, this whole thing is going to like collapse in a heap. It's a bit of a house of cards. Even when we had staff, even when we we're growing, even when we we're profitable, I was perpetually fearful that like, oh, around the next corner will be some sort of like financial disaster. And, you know, next thing you know, I'll be laying people off. Um, so yeah, I, I, I look back with, um, Definitely feelings of stress. And in those early, especially that first year or so, I remember I, like at nighttime, I would try to go to I'd be going to sleep and um, doing this, like, uh, I guess, anxiety thing of counting money, being like, okay, there's that much in that savings account. And there it is. So, like, for that credit card, that's not due for this much time. And, like, if I just get that thing and that invoice I collect, and uh, it was just like, oh, it's just horrible. <laughs> How did you decide on responsibility and who was? doing what? How did you split that up? Yeah, I think uh, responsibilities uh, felt reasonably natural. I mean, uh, for a lot of it, like uh, I was I was doing all the design and front end and uh, had a sort of natural um, interest in marketing. And Sayan was a natural project manager. Jun at first was actually um, not uh, not an operational role. He was just like, oh, I'll put a bit of money in. I have a bit of savings and I'll put that in. And then uh, in a little while, we were like, actually, we need you know someone to go and deal with the bank teller who thinks we're running an adult website and we need <laughs> um, you know somebody to like actually manage support and he quickly got sucked into the business. Um, and Cyan would just kind of um, make sure things were running, uh, ensure like our freelance business didn't fall over while we were uh, while we were doing this because we were effectively running two jobs, two businesses. We kept freelancing for maybe a year and a half because there was no way that our new startup was going to like actually foot the bill. So it was just a period of, of a lot of work, really. Did you ever feel like uh, giving up? 
I felt like giving up a little close to the actual launch. Uh, around like month five, our, our developer had gone AWOL for a little bit. He'd like moved back to Melbourne because he was from Melbourne, which is a long story, but how we originally, uh, how we eventually actually ended up here. But yeah, he went AWOL. The site wasn't finished. We'd burned through most of our money and it was starting to look like you know, maybe this was just a really bad idea. We were living with science parents. And um, yeah, around then I did, I have to say, I, I felt like giving up. Once we launched, um, like on literally on the day of launch, I went off and registered more domain names to make more marketplaces. So by that point, I think I was starting to get excited again. And once we actually saw money coming in by like December, when we were seeing that sort of thousand dollars a week, I, I think at that point I was like, oh, this is a this is an actual thing. This could like, um, it's not a big stretch of the imagination to imagine it paying our salaries. That was our early like aspiration was just, let's make a thing that can pay our salary and we don't need to be in a particular place to work on it. So it wasn't like, there was no point in time where we sat down and went, imagine if in the future we have hundreds of people working for us. It's like, not like that. It was just, uh, you know, what if we could get to that point just over there? Seeing the money roll in allowed Cyan and Collis to really think about their dream of travelling the world whilst having their business cover the expenses. And in 2008, just a year and a half after starting the company, they packed up their things and started travelling, leaving Collis's brother to run the business. Cyan and I like had a little garage sale, got rid of all of our stuff. wasn't a lot of stuff. Um, by that point, we'd managed to move out of Cyan's parents' house, though. So we had a bit of stuff. Um, and, uh, yeah, we had two suitcases, and that was all we kept. And, I mean, with stuff in them, obviously. <laughs> and then, yeah, we, we left the country, went to Hong Kong, and then to Canada and France and just a bunch of... It wasn't a very well-planned trip, but for a year we travelled. And uh, during that time, I'd managed to convince my brother, my older brother, Vahid, who had moved to Australia before me, um, to join. He just finished his PhD in physics and uh, was like, turns out there's this thing in academia where um, if you want to be taken really seriously, you need to leave the country and work in another country first, which is kind of strange, really. <laughs> but um, So he was like, oh, I guess I need to leave and go, you know, um, do some postdoctorate stuff in somewhere, the UK or the US or what have you. And I don't think he was especially excited by it. And so we convinced him to join our, our capitalist business um, and leave the, <laughs> the world of academics behind. And yeah, so, and then of course, Cyan and I left the country and we're like, oh, by the way, you're in charge. And so uh, when around that time, we needed a second developer um, and uh, our, our first one who'd moved back to Melbourne already was like, I know somebody. And so uh, Vahid moved down to Melbourne and uh, set up our office here. And after a year of traveling, I remember getting a phone call. We were in Paris at the time and he was like, you really need to come back. There's like seven people working here now and you've never met any of them. And this is like <laughs> getting a little weird. Um, and so, yeah, we, we came back to Australia and um, just moved to Melbourne. If the idea of two company founders jetting off around the world sounds a little unusual, that's because it is. In the early days of the business, Collis and Cyan just wanted to build something that would allow them the freedom to travel. And that desire meant that they were much more open to hiring remote workers and building a company that could operate, no matter where they were. Yeah, it was a bit weird, actually, that we were not there. We also, by that point, had remote staff as well, though. So um, very early on, being a business that was started by people who wanted to travel, it didn't occur to me that you're not supposed to like just start hiring people 
anywhere. And so I would hire like people to uh, not uh, the developers. I I got into my head that they should all be together, the software developers. But the like when we needed someone to run a site or to uh, review content, we would just hire from our own forums. We had little forums going that um, had a like a nascent little community, and we would hire people. And so you know they would just be all over the place. During this time, the company started expanding into other verticals. They were making enough cash that Collis and Cyan could stop freelancing. But Collis, being someone who hates to be bored, started using his newfound time to write blog posts about Photoshop. After we started um, the first marketplace, there was a time period where like, it had started to... It was still a lot of work, but I was no longer freelancing. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, I have more time. And so I just started making new things. And so, yeah, I, I got into my head that we would, um, you know how like those home renovation shows where they buy a house and then they like fix it up and sell it. I was like, yeah, oh, we should do that. But for like websites with our skills, we could buy like real like dumpster fires of websites, fix them up and sell them. <laughs> um, it'll be awesome. I bought one, let's say, and no, who was like, oh man, what are you doing? <laughs> like, why have we just blown $1,400 on this thing? It's like, it really wasn't awesome. It was like this little Photoshop tutorial site and the Photoshop tutorials were terrible and the name wasn't very good. And yeah, I, I fixed it up. Uh, and when I say fixed it up, I mean, in the end, I deleted everything and just started a brand new site <laughs> on a domain name I never and still to this day don't like. <laughs> Turned out I wasn't very good at it. Uh, aside from that part of not being good at it, I also wasn't good at letting go. Once once I'd, I'd made it and I think because there wasn't many Photoshop tutorials around at that time, it got picked up on on um, kind of the Reddit of its day, a site called Dig, and um, and like a few other places, and traffic started coming in, and so yeah, that that became a thing. And to this day, we still we still run that site. It's now called uh, Tuts Plus, and has millions of people visit every every month. But yeah, at that time, it was me writing tutorials until I um, decided I couldn't write tutorials anymore, and so I put up an ad saying looking for other people to write tutorials, and hired somebody in. Florida, I think, um, was the first guy to sort of take over. But meanwhile, uh, San and I, with our like depth of not doing a very good job as freelancers, decided to start a site called Freelance Switch to teach people how to be freelancers. Then one day, because I'd gotten into blogging, I was like, you know, blogging could be a thing that people do for like social good. And so we started a site called Blog Action Day, where on one day a year, we would get blogs all around the world to post on a particular topic. And so that became like, stupidly, I, the day I chose was the day of our wedding anniversary. <laughs> it was actually the day after, but like it depends on time zones. And later we were in time zones where it was the actual day of our anniversary. But yeah, so we ran that for a, a few years, every year. Um, like, And this was like, you know, the White House blog uh, participated and um, the United Nations, uh, like one of their, their like subgroups got involved. As the company launched their second marketplace, it became clear that it was time for a change of name. Flash Den would become a thing of the past. So they started searching for a new name for the company, one which could sit above all the marketplaces they were creating and not lock them into producing content about Flash. We started to realise, well, needed some way to refer to all these things and we wanted to have like a little drop down that told you you could switch sites and stuff and we needed a name. I, I had the idea that, well, it's all these like um, marketplaces we were starting had this weird convention of an animal and a place an animal lives until we discovered that a lot of animals live in holes and are, are like swamps and things and so <laughs> give hole didn't seem like a very good <laughs> probably ran in our tradition of unsavory names but it uh, didn't seem like a great brand name. Um, 
so, but before before we came to that realization, we'd already knocked out Audio Jungle and Video Hive and what have you. And um, so uh, I was like, oh, these animals, maybe they live in a garden. We'll call it Eden. And we tried to trademark it, discovered that was quite difficult to do. And so went to a site called Brand Bucket that just sells made up names and yes. found Inverto.com. <laughs> Your business was growing uh, fairly rapidly, like even as you were you were traveling in terms of the value that was coming in mm-hmm. into the business. How did you sort of like manage that growth in the site? Yeah, so um, things did spiral up quickly. The when we hit that first thousand dollars a week mark back in like December two thousand six, I, I remember sending an email to the the whole team saying, you know what, this time next year we're going to get to nineteen thousand, and it, it was because nineteen thousand times fifty two weeks was a million dollars a year, and so I was like, that's our 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 goal. And uh, one year later, we literally got to like nineteen thousand five hundred a week or something like that. Anyhow, and I was like, wow. Evidently, it was my email, <laughs> and so I sent another email with another like over the top uh, growth target. Turned out it was not my email; it was just organic growth because my next one I was way off. But yeah, it does give you a sense of like how fast things were growing because that was like a twenty-fold increase. The next year was like a five-fold increase, and and then like you know with the law of sort of large numbers, the the percentage year on year would slowly reduce. But yeah, a, a lot of growth kept coming because we kept launching into new verticals and sites. Uh, we launched into uh, WordPress theme marketplace, which grew super quickly and there was sufficient um, depth I guess uh, in in the marketplaces that uh, like the growth was quite sustaining for quite some years um, mm. and in terms of how we managed it I mean there's a lot of hiring uh, we started to lean on my dad for general business advice so uh, he around like 2008 when when uh, Sam and I were traveling the GFC happened and mm. um, having in mind that we trade in USD so all the all the um, transactions on our marketplaces are all uh, American uh, dollars and we were in in Australia, and so we were doing some dumb things like we would get USD, we would then tra- transact it back in, uh, into like bank accounts in Australia, and, Australian, and then uh, of course our liability, the thing we owed people on the other side was still in USD, and when currency started going cray-cray during that period, it turned out that, oh, FX is a thing, <laughs> you can make some really <laughs> bad decisions. And around that time, I remember being like, Dad, I think we might need like a little bit of advice on some basic things, and so he helped us find an accountant and like you know start to I think just think about the business a little bit more and um, with a bit more structure that helped a bit um, but honestly a lot of the history like my when I look back was just a period of like constantly having a fire somewhere and realizing oh well we're gonna have to like solve for that like oh wow you know we need to get like new licenses and all this legal work maybe we need to hire a lawyer <laughs> it wasn't like a plan it wasn't like a there was no cheat sheet going okay well at this point then you're going to have to do xyz it was just um constantly trying to figure stuff out which is i think part of why i look back and think wow that was a stressful period as there was no easy years even though when you look at like the um, business metrics like the revenue growth or what have you then it seems like well must have been like lots of easy years in some ways because things were just like growing often quite organically but being inside and being completely uh, inexperienced and we were all like kind of novices at business it was just like constantly being challenged like you were perpetually pushed past your limit of things you knew coming up after the break Envato continues to rise but a tech giant sends them a cease and desist
Welcome back to Building a Unicorn. I'm Christopher Lawson. Around 2009, Envato is on a roll. They've got lots of users, plenty of cash coming in, and they're now starting to sort out some of the business side of things, like trademarks. They were still running marketplaces like Flashden and wanted to protect the value that they'd built. So they went through the trademarking process, and it was at this stage that they ran into a big problem, Adobe. We got into our heads that we needed to trademark our, our name. We hadn't done it yet, and so we, we um, applied for a trademark on Flashden. And now there's a lot of things, actually, that uh, since the company's gotten bigger, I've come to appreciate a bit more. But So now this seems like, of course, this was going to happen. But at the time, it was just flew right over my, my head that this might happen. But Adobe decided, well, can't let you trademark our trademark. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and so, you know, they would have told their lawyers who um, would have uh, sent like, their, their counsel, like, uh, um, you know, hey, go take care of this. And um, now knowing what I know, it's like kind of typical for for um, legal counsel to go, come in and go, like, go well, we've got to be going really strong and make sure that they have the, the fear of God put into them. <laughs> so they dropped this whole plan. And so that's what we got. We got a letter which was, you know, your children will belong to us if you don't, if you don't uh, not literally in case anyone from Adobe's listening, don't stress. Um, but yeah, enough to, to like really panic me. And um, uh, like at that time, you know, with the lack of experience, I, I laugh about it now, but at that time it was kind of scary. Like we're like, whoa, this is this like multi-billion dollar company and they've sent a letter of demands saying that they need access to all of our financials and like all kinds of stuff. And maybe they're going to use that to explain that we have been misusing their trademark. So we changed the name of Flash and we completely changed the name of our main breadwinner um changed its url and everything and it was okay as it happens flash was starting to come down and website themes for wordpress were really going up so you know it turned out okay but it was quite terrifying there was lots of moments of like um as I say, like confusion or uh, what I, I look back at now and think, oh, I, I misunderstood big companies. There was a time when we we just started um, Flashden and we wanted to get into audio next and our competitor, iStock Photo, which I'd, I'd actually had experience with, had suddenly announced they were going to launch into audio. And so we're like, oh no, this big company, they're going to get there first. And so we completely hustled, launched an audio marketplace in like six weeks or something. And uh, it took them a year and a half or two years. And I remember being like, I just don't understand. They're so big. They have so much resources. Why did it take them so long? Now, we're big. I'm like, oh, I get it, actually. Like, getting a large, like, ship to do anything, it's not the same as when you're just, like, in a little dinghy and you're like, turn left. We just turn left. And you're in a giant ship, sometimes actually corralling everybody and doing things to the standard you want to do them. It's actually quite time consuming. And, yeah, like, there's uh, there's a lot of uh, those kinds of lessons, I think, that, like, you know, when you're small you often fear the big companies and you imagine them to be more on the ball and more like ready to to throw all their resources behind things but when you're actually working in, and we're no large company by any stretch of the imagination but when you're getting a bit bigger you realize that there's a lot more going on and you're a lot more likely to want to protect value not just go and chase new value and um your operations are a bit slower and you have to convince people to do stuff you can't just be like we're doing this now and uh yeah i, I I often think that, like when I uh, when I speak to new newer founders who are in an environment which has got like a sort of big incumbent, that they shouldn't worry as much as they probably are about those big incumbents. When I first saw Collis speak about Invado, it was back in 2010 at a pro blogger event in Melbourne. At the time, they had less than 10 employees, 
and I was personally blown away by the progress that they'd made with such a small team. It was already a place that was inspiring creative people around the world. But fast forward eight years, and the company now has more than 500 staff. They're growing rapidly. And the best part is, unlike other companies you'll hear about in tech and on this show, who raise a lot of cash to scale, Envato is privately owned, and they've never taken on outside investment to fuel that growth. You've been a company that has been bootstrapped from day one. Did you ever consider taking on outside capital, or were you just determined that we're going to make this on our own? Uh, we so we have indeed been bootstrapped since day one, and to this day, so no no debt and no investment. And I think uh, there was times where I would like because we would get emails all the time from big VCs and. PEs and other acronyms and <laughs> people with lots of money. Um, and, uh, you know, they're like super nice, <laughs> super nice people, always very helpful. And um, and like it's because I think their industry is a relationship building one. Um, and so I, I those times where I was like curious as to like how this how does this work? Um, even to this day, when I meet founders who've taken investment, I find it very curious. Like, you know, what is what's it like having investors and a board? And like, how does like do, what? Do they decide, and um, yeah, do they are they are they nice? Are they mean? Are they? Uh, and so I, I have natural curiosity, but um, not so much curiosity as to actually do it. I think we were fortunate enough not to need to take money, and I I like control, and I enjoyed that we could control our own destiny and not not necessarily have um, external forces saying you need to be this size or you must take this decision. Early on, we watched our competitor. Stock photo um, worsen the rates for their contributors. So um, out of every dollar, their their uh, community, their contributors would get less over time, and uh, we were in the position where we could go the opposite direction. And it was very important to me that we could still do that because you know it's the easiest way uh, um, to make money when you're a large sort of platform or marketplace is to just you know when you have that much momentum, it's much harder for the many to act in unison, and so uh, you you end up having a lot of flexibility to increase your prices and fees. And um, I was always a bit worried that if we had, it was probably an unjustified worry, but I was always worried that if we had investors, we'd maybe have um, people acting in for different motivations, more just straight out financial motivations. As it is, I have a shareholding group who's super chilled out and is like, just like, wow, this is turned out way better than any of us expected. So, you know, great. <laughs> As opposed to a group who are like, this isn't the 10x that we were expecting and you need to like uh, move harder. Instead, we can we can still push hard as a company, but it's for like reasons that are mission motivated or purpose-led. Like we want to do a better job for our user base and for our staff and for our stakeholders, not necessarily just to, uh, to achieve a particular financial return. What's been the most challenging thing that you've had to learn whilst building a team? Because it's a lot different running a 10-person company to running a 100-person company. Yeah. Yeah, it, it really is. Like the at that sort of 10-person company size, I often felt like we were a product team. So I was, and that was something I sort of understood, like, you know, the different roles in actually creating something. Once you start getting bigger and that sort of 100-person size is probably maybe even a bit before that, you begin having roles who aren't, um, they're not makers. They're not like actually, they're, they're um, 
kind of helping lead and shepherd and uh, steward things. And that's quite different once you start introducing those layers. And at this point, there's multiple types of roles that are far from uh, far from the sort of like customer frontline. They're, they're roles that are strategy or uh, analysts or roles which are sort of almost meta roles. And I think going from that like moving from those two worlds was quite challenging for me. There was this long period of time where I used to think I was being unproductive unless I was creating. So like if I wasn't designing, if I was doing something like email or helping unblock other people, it's like this is like a waste of time. The only true the only true productivity is creation. And it, I had to like get out of that mindset and start to understand that, oh, hey, my job actually is email and communication and meetings and being an introvert meetings used to stress me out um, like actually having to spend time chatting to people I would feel kind of stressed the very first time I, I so I, I came to Melbourne and met the, there was a team of seven people and spent the day with them and it was so stressful at the end of the day I had a, a huge migraine couldn't get on my flight home because like it was just too much people at this point with hundreds of people it's uh, I've sort of like beaten that yeah, it's probably if you know if you get seasick easily and you just spend a year on a boat, you probably get over it eventually. <laughs> um, I, I've managed to beat down that part of myself, but yeah, I think so. There was an adjustment to lots of human contact, <laughs> I want to say, and an adjustment to what is productivity. And then I think as we grow uh, grew to that sort of size where we started bringing in more executives, I think there was another big adjustment where, and this is not necessarily the same for every founder because uh, lots of them have worked in places, but I hadn't had any real experience working in a company with more than like 10 staff. So, you know, I didn't know what a HR team was, for instance, like, or, you know, um, people, I remember interviewing somebody and they're like, oh, so my KPIs are like, blah, blah. And I was like, what's a KPI? I just, I don't know this phrase. <laughs> and that would happen all the time. Like, they'd be like, oh, so what's the product manager do? I'm like, I don't know what a product manager is. And they're like, oh, do you have like producers or like business analysts? I, was like, I don't know what any of these things you're talking about are. And so there was this time period where it, I, what I found challenging was actually just, I, I started assuming everyone else would know better. So like we would start to hire senior people and I had this real like attitude and mindset of like, well, you're the like executive, senior, like experienced person. I guess I should just start listening to you. And it was a weird, awkward dynamic because, um, you know, people want leadership. So first of all, when the leader is like, I don't know, <laughs> like, what am I doing? I had just had this whole other bout of like basically imposter syndrome for this period of time where and I don't think it worked very well because um, it's a, I think you do need to trust yourself, but you have to be open to learning. I think it's bad if you're like, oh, psh, I know everything, but I do think you also need to have some uh, belief in your own insights and views and uh, confidence that's like, you know, you're going to try to make things in a certain way, but also, um, so I think that was that was like one part of it, and then the other part was just having to learn so much, um, like in such a short period of time about a lot of different like kind of areas, I guess, of business. In some ways, founding a company, especially one that scales, is like a it's like a very um, it's like a very expensive long MBA, I suppose. Like you end up experiencing a bit of everything. I used to use job interviews as a time when I would learn a lot about different functions. So when I came to hire an HR manager, I would ask every candidate questions that help me understand HR more. Like, so what do you think is important in your work week? And it's like, oh, so that's what they seem to do. Because <laughs> there was just a lot of times where I was, you know, someone would say, 
like I remember um, getting some advice that you should hire an HR manager. And I was like, okay. But I didn't know why. It wasn't like a conclusion I'd come to. It was just I'd sort of been informed that this was an important step at this time. And so, yeah, just start to explore. So, yeah, I think in sort of summary, there was just it's a uh, if you're not had that experience of like larger firms or companies and seen these kinds of things, then what the I think the key difference from going from that sort of small size to larger one is just that uh, things don't scale in like a sort of linear way. It's not that, you know, when you're at 10 people, you add one more and one more and it stays the same. It's just got like one more person. There's like time points when you suddenly go, oh, now we need a manager. And eventually you need managers of managers. And it it's um, then like trying to communicate things is harder. And yeah. How did you guys know how fast to grow your team? I think we, we often wanted to grow f- faster. So uh, uh, hiring was actually a natural throttle in many ways. Like it was difficult to find good people who, you know, wanted to, especially at the beginning, we had like not much of a brand name. So it was hard to find uh, really awesome people who were like, yeah, sure, I'll come. And I remember the first time we tried to hire a lawyer and like, I didn't used to wear shoes all the time in the office. And I remember interviewing this like awesome lawyer and I was sitting there without shoes on. Um, and uh, afterwards we made the job offer and she said no. And I was like, I really thought she was going to say yes. And I was like, maybe I need to start wearing shoes. It's just like the most mundane, idiotic thing to realize. But um, I think, uh, you know, we were not like especially good at hiring in those early days. So that that was a natural throttle. We didn't have that much money to pay as well. So, you know, being bootstrapped, we weren't, we didn't have uh, huge salaries or uh, things like that. So, yeah, that throttled a little bit. And then I think also, uh, again, being bootstrapped, we were always very mindful of being profitable. I think when you are in the mindset of having investments, you have a very different mindset to growth. But if you're bootstrapped, uh, then you're like, well, we must make profit or literally I have to start letting people go. Like it's like a, there's no such thing as like, oh, we're just going to run it in losses for a while. Um, and so that, that I think uh, also meant that we kind of tried to scale up according to the needs of the day. Like, wow, we really seem to need a manager for this group of people who are like a little bereft of management, but also we can only afford this much or this many people. One of the big challenges with any startup is attracting staff. Envato is now a big company that has amazing offices and offers perks like the ability to work remotely and travel the world for up to three months a year. But not every startup is cashed up and can afford to pay huge salaries in those early days. And for a long time, Envato was no different. So how can you actually bring in the best talent if you can't afford to pay them the same as they'd get somewhere else? I think in any time of a company's life, you attract just like different types of people. So there's the type of person who wants to work at a, like a five-person business is much different generally to the one who wants to work in a 500-person business. So I think we, in those early, early days, then we attracted people who um, just liked the idea of uh, making. We had a lot of developers and we made sure we had a, like a a very developer-friendly culture. So I think we we might not have had the best salary, but we actually valued what they were doing, and um, you know the it was um, it was like a kind of no fuss environment. Our, our uh, dev managers at that time set out like a lot of good sort of cultural norms for developers, and I think that helped a lot as we started to get to uh, the size where we wanted to recruit people who were like when we went to hire our first general counsel like so we wanted a lawyer um we wanted someone who was senior like that was a time when 
you know, uh, we had to convince someone, and it turns out wearing shoes was an important part of convincing someone <laughs> that they should join a business like ours. I think what we what we kind of lent to was uh, if you wanted to do something that was um, a bit more meaningful, uh, where you had more impact, where your um, uh, the business was run in a sort of values-oriented way, because we, we were always big on on um, values, um, then Envato was like a, a place for you. And ultimately, our first general counsel had just come from Lonely Planet, which was a founder-led uh, company and had a great set of values. And she was looking for another digital business with that sound of, kind of vibe. So there was a little bit of like matchmaking, not matchmaking, like, you know, just like finding the right, uh, the right fit. Um, people who didn't care that like the office was kind of chaotic and wasn't very like high end <laughs> and you know we were a little cheap on things there was cables everywhere because like Vahid my brother used to do the cabling and um, <laughs> you know the I can remember he used to also be in charge of the bins and he had this technique of like getting into the bin to stomp it down to get more in. <laughs> so you'd be like busy working away with like my brother next to you stomping on a bin so it wasn't like this like highbrow environment <laughs> and if that's what like a bit of casualness and um, kind of down to earth vibe appealed to you then you be like, yeah, this seems great. And if you came in for your interview and that put you off, you'd be like, yeah, maybe not. <laughs> I think I might go down the road to something a bit more uh, corporate. You said earlier that um, you struggled with this thought that maybe, you know, if something went wrong or whatever, the whole company would sort of collapse. Was there a point in time where you realized, no, actually, this is going to be something that is really big and really meaningful? I don't think there was ever like a specific point, if that makes sense. Like literally every year, even to well, maybe not to this day. I guess there must have been some points, but um, I would I would fear for like oh maybe this isn't going to work much longer. We um, we're a seasonal business, but you wouldn't really think of it. But there's seasonality in in things like how people buy and make websites, and um, same with like videos. And so, at different times of year, have different kinds of like highs. But in particular, um, the northern summer, uh, which is our winter. Day, down here in Melbourne is like a not good sales time. And that happens to be also when we write our budgets for the year and um, it's like bleak outside. And so more or less every single year between like the months of uh, late April and July, I start to get bummed out about like, oh, maybe this is it. I don't know if it's really going to work out. <laughs> and that happened for a lot, of, a lot of years. I think, you know, when we probably when we moved to our current offices, we were... Um, 60 people here in Melbourne and we moved into this this big space and um, we could afford it and you know we we're profitable that was probably the time that I started thinking well this is like seems like we've got some the business has some legs the other interesting thing about Collis and Cyan is that they're part of the Baha'i religion which sort of takes this holistic view about the different types of religions that exist in the world. It champions things like equality and universal peace, and there's a lot of similarities in terms of the way they have built the culture in their company. I think that um, founders uh, of, of companies are, are sometimes like a patient zero for culture. So, you know, you're the beginning of the, some new virus and every new person you add, like they kind of get that thing and then it mutates a little bit and it changes over time and with more people. But ultimately, you can kind of trace a lot of aspects of businesses back to their commencement so in good and bad ways i see stuff where i'm like oh why do we, why do we do that I'm like that's probably to do with this like this set of decisions i can remember making that has led us to this so yeah i think there's a little bit which is just a byproduct of 
who you are. And as Baha'is, I think we have certain like uh, views about the world. That you know, humanity is like a is is not a thing that you can think of in individuals. It's like a an, a a whole. You have to you, you can't separate parts of the world and be like, well, you know, it doesn't really matter what's happening over there because like over here we're fine. Like Baha'is have this view that uh, or conception that um, humanity is interlinked. It's it's like a very deep. Uh, rooted belief that uh, that humanity is interlinked and that um, you know people have uh, rights to things and should be treated well and we should we should be concerned with the equality of races and religions and uh, the of genders and all, all those kinds of things and I think that sort of stuff naturally bleeds in if you believe things. Um, then you're going to act in accordance with them. And um, so I think that's a big part of it. But also there was a point in time where we started ask, uh, like we, we tried to articulate specific company values. And it was because I'd seen, I'd seen the ones from Atlassian. One day I was looking for HR software, of all things, and I'd put out a tweet saying, oh, does anyone know any good HR software? And this guy wrote to me and was like, yeah, I'm actually working on a startup um, that, that makes software for HR, and uh, can I come in and chat to you? His name was Didier Elzinger, and he was starting a business called CultureAmp, which has since become this big company. And yeah, I showed up, and he was he talked to me about culture and what they were doing, and um, it was a really fun conversation. But one of the things I remember him showing me was Atlassian's values, because he was on their foundation board. And I was like, that seems really good we should totally do that. And so we spent time talking about like what things we valued and trying to articulate them, which was a really helpful exercise. And it's like uh, at Invoto, we have values which I, in my head, mentally translate into Baha'i values and kind of like, I think, humanity values, I want to say. <laughs> you know, we have a value at Invoto of tell it like it is, which in my mind is basically truthfulness. Um, and we have one of fair go, which in my mind is justice. And I think those are universal um, virtues uh, and universal uh, traits people value. And I, I would just think, well, how do we translate this into a sort of practical day-to-day version of this? And one which is maybe, you know, feels more Invoto. But ultimately, um, there's definitely an, an aspect of, of uh, my beliefs. But also, I think, you know, as Invoda's grown with uh, different executives and um, different leaders in the business, then, uh, you know, it, as I say, it's, uh, culture isn't like from one person. It, it sort of mutates and changes as more people join. And so there's a bit of everybody who's worked at Invoda in our culture at this point. Invoda has seen a lot of change over its time. And in late 2016, the dynamics at the top of the company also changed. Cyan decided that it was time for her to step away from the day-to-day operations of the business after a health scare. Collis says it's something she'd been thinking about for a while, and that decision gave her the opportunity to build something new, a chocolate company called Hey Tiger. It was the first time in more than a decade that Collis and Cyan had worked apart. All their creative effort had been on Envato, and Collis says it took some adjustment kind of sucks in some ways i think there's some bits which are nicer like so uh when we would work together one problem we would have is that we were not very good at reassuring each other you know when you've had a hard day at work you go home you see your partner and maybe you maybe you complain about like oh this thing happened and that thing happened and i think i botched that and i've got this worry and when your partner does something completely different they're a like only half as interesting so like yeah, I kind of remember those names, but it's like, who's that person again? And then B, you're much better at reassuring, this really doesn't matter. I promise you, this is going to feel okay. When you're working together, though, you've got to stand a real chance of being like, holy crap, you did what? <laughs> what do you mean that thing's got that problem? And so uh, that's definitely gotten better. Now Now we are better at reassuring each other. Um, I think for me, I'm also, it's... Uh, 
it's been enjoyable seeing her tackle a new industry, a new market. As she has built a chocolate company that it doesn't like it doesn't exactly do this, but it, it kind of has a very distinct female targeting in their brand and their um, the the people who buy their chocolate. And observing that has been kind of inspirational. To be like, oh, okay, so it's like you know these these are some of the ways you might target that market. And so now at Envoto, we're working on a new product, um, which is targeting Instagram users to make websites from their phone. And I'm like, hey, I think. Actually, we can give this a twist towards targeting that sort of uh, female demographic uh, as the primary user. So I think in in some senses, uh, working in separate ways is uh, just means there's also more going on and there's more opportunities to like learn from each other. As you've grown the company, what has been the biggest moment of learning that you've had as a leader? Hmm. I think for me, the thing that probably stands out is is the realization that I needed to back myself a little bit more. I think I just had moments where I had crises of confidence, um, somewhat legitimate. Sometimes I'm like, mm, yeah, I really was a bit of a dumbass back then. But um, but also, you know, there was other aspects of me that I think well, I probably should have given myself a bit more credence um, in my own views, which I think um, maybe is like part of uh, any, I guess, any journey of maturation where you, there's a point in time where you start to realize that you can do this thing and that, you know, that, that yeah, it needs a certain level of confidence. I sometimes think about driving. You know when you're driving and um, like if you're a not confident driver, sometimes actually the worst uh, thing that happens is people like don't do things quick enough. Like they're trying to change lanes and they're like a bit too hesitant and actually it's almost safer if you're a little more decisive and I think it's been the same with leadership. Like I think you don't want to be if you're not good at it yet, you shouldn't just like recklessly drive around. But as you get a little bit better, you start to realize that a bit of decisiveness actually is a key aspect of leadership. Um, being, you know, uh, okay, being wrong, being humble about it, being open to learning, all those things are, I think, also uh, key things. And those things maybe came a little more naturally. I'm I'm uh, okay admitting that I don't know everything. I think I was more, I had more problems admitting that maybe I did know some things though. You mentioned that you you had a bit of imposter syndrome, etc. Do you still get that feeling of imposter syndrome now that you're the CEO of a big, like 500 plus <laughs> person company? And how have you dealt with that? I've definitely gotten better on the imposter syndrome thing. You know, my, my dad always used to say, wait till you're in your 40s, Carlos, because like, you know, that's when you'll be really productive. Like uh, at that point, all the lessons have like mounted up, but you're still got plenty of energy to do stuff. And I am 39, turning 40 this year. So I'm like, awesome. <laughs> next year it begins. <laughs> up until now, I don't know what I've been doing, but uh, next year it starts. But yeah, I think I, I maybe am showing a bit of my age in the sense that I am um, am starting to feel a little more confident in my own skin and feeling a bit better about things I am good at and things I'm not good at. And um, I think uh, time certainly helps. And I guess uh, objective success has certainly helped. There's been uh, moments where I've thought, this isn't too bad, especially like uh, times where I've I've stepped away for a little while. So there was a, a time where I, I took three months off and I left my COO in charge and I returned and I was like, this is actually a pretty well-run place. And, you know, like sometimes when you the, your face is like um, right in things, you stop being able to see the forest for the trees. So it's just taking a step back and returning and thinking, actually, you know, by any objective like ruler, this is going well. It's been going well for long enough that it can't be a fluke. So maybe there is a little bit of um, 
I should take a bit more confidence in it. Now, though, I worry maybe I'm going to become overconfident. I'll be like, I'm 40 now. I can do anything. <laughs> so when you look at what you've created, how do you feel? I think uh, I when I look at the business today, it's impossible not to feel some pride that like the that this thing has become a thing. I, I also always like kind of try to check myself on. You know, I think it's a bit easy in in sort of startup culture to be like we're going to change the world or like look at what we've done. When I often think like as a platform, you know, we support creators around the world to to earn a living uh, through our through our um, marketplaces and what have you. And um, it's tempting to think well they couldn't earn a living otherwise, but that's not true. They're all like super talented people. They would have been okay. So what I I try to pride myself on is that maybe we've done a slightly better job than. Um, would have happened if it wasn't for us. Like maybe if if we hadn't started this business, someone else probably would have. Because I think you know opportunities get taken and needs get served. But maybe they would have done a slightly shoddier job or been a little bit more money faced about it, or um, maybe not not established a company that uh, um, was quite as values oriented. So I I think the thing that I take pride on is not so much that wow look we've built a really big company because at some level. That's just a thing that's happened. But I, I take more pride in the fact that I think maybe we've done a, a, a good job of it. Um, like that uh, the choices we've made during that time have led to a particular variation of this outcome that I can take some pride in. Thanks to Collis for speaking with me for this story. Building a Unicorn is a Lawson Media production. You can find out more about the show or get episode transcripts at our website, buildingaunicorn.com. This episode was hosted and scripted by me, Christopher Lawson, with research assistance by Patrick Glaverick. Our theme music is by Nick Buchanan with other music from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. Mixing and sound design by James Parkinson and our artwork is by Andrew Millist. And if you love this episode, it would really help us out if you could share it with a couple of friends. Personal connections are the best way to build a podcast audience and make the show more sustainable. Also, if you've got any ideas for future guests or perhaps you want to advertise on the show, send us an email to unicorn at lawson.media. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Build a Unicorn. We'll be back next week with another episode. Thanks for listening.